Um, people of Earth, this is Prosthetic Vogon Jeltz of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. As you are probably aware, plans for the development of the outlying regions of the galaxy involve the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system. And your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. Right before the Earth is destroyed, one human escapes the planet and explores the universe. Special guest Matt from Season 14, Time for a Podcast, joins us to discuss paper mache heads, why Moe's death is so sleepy, and the best thing about the dark web. Don't panic as we find out if the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and I am joined by James Brief and special guest, Movies at the Mat. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here and be back. This is great. Yeah, so you last joined us when we talked about the Iron Giant. You reached out to us about that on Twitter, and... I think at some point we were talking about the fact that James and I were both 42, and you said since we were 42, we should do The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and you you wanted to come on for that as well. That's it. Absolutely. And like I, I understood that reference because I'd seen this movie once, but I wasn't like a big Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy guy. I never read the book. I didn't see the movie when it first came out. I don't think... I remember that I saw it, but I really don't remember when or where or how. Did you read the book, James, like when you were a kid? Yeah, I did, actually. Um, I had some friends in high school that were very into Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So this was something that uh, I had known about, and I've made references to it before, but I worked in a Barnes & Noble when I was in high school. There was a bargain book. It was like six bucks, and it had the entire collection. There's like five books and then like a short, I think like a sixth kind of novella. And I'd read the first book. I remembered it being funny. I remembered it being very, like, wacky. Like, I'd never read anything like this before. And then I may have gotten into the second book, which I think is called The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And I did not get into uh, further into it. Not really for any particular reason. I just kind of, uh, to me, Hitchhiker's Guide was a very, like, high school thing. And I kind of not grew out of it, but just, like, moved on. I actually had never seen the film until I watched it for this podcast. Because I had read it. I remembered parts of it. I particularly remembered the 42 thing, and I thought that was very funny in the novel when I read it. It's it's pretty much exactly how it comes across in the movie, but um, I didn't really remember the particulars of most of the film after Earth and after The Ultimate Question. Matt, you tweeted recently that you were like going back 
and like rewatching the movie and the BBC series. So I'm guessing that you're like a bigger fan of the novels, the franchise, all of it. Is that right? So this movie was my introduction to this. I hadn't heard of it before. I didn't know any of those references. And I just happened to catch it like one night, like after it like, you know, came to like HBO or wherever it was on. I loved it. I, I was laughing to all of the humor. And then I found out like its history. I was like, oh, it was a book. Oh, it was a radio series. Oh, it was it was a stage play. It was a miniseries like this. This thing has just kind of found different iterations. It was a video game at one point. Like it just kept going and it was Douglas Adams' baby and he just wanted to find as many versions for it as he could. And I've read the first book. I loved it. I got halfway through the second book. I didn't finish it, had to return it to the library, kind of forgot to like check it back out and keep it going. But I want to like just buy the whole collection now and read it all. Uh, and yeah, I, I watched the miniseries for the first time just a few days ago. And like, it's a lot of the same dialogue and the same lines, but like, it's my kind of humor. It really works for me. And so, yeah, this movie being my introduction to it is kind of where my first love of all things Hitchhiker's Guide. Okay, so so we all got the 42 joke. For whatever reason, like, it just took us a while to get around to scheduling this podcast, but James and I are quickly approaching 43, but we are still 42, so it still works. Your initial idea, Matt, is still valid. So that could be the question. How old are Alan and James when they recorded this episode? That is the ultimate question of life and the universe and everything, maybe. So let's give just a little recap of the movie for people who haven't seen it. It's about Arthur Dent, a simple man from Earth who wants to live a simple life in a simple home. When his house is bulldozed, his friend Ford, who is actually an alien, takes Arthur into outer space. Because not only was Arthur's house demolished, but the entire planet Earth was destroyed to make way for an intergalactic highway. Arthur and Ford hitchhike onto a Vogon ship. Those are the bureaucratic creatures who disintegrated Earth. Arthur and Ford are rescued by Galactic President Zaphod Briebelbrox, as well as another Earthling named Trillian. Arthur and Trillian had flirted at a party, but she ended up leaving with Zaphod. Zaphod is on a mission to discover the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, because a supercomputer already determined that the answer was 42. But before they can find out what that question is, Arthur, Ford, Trillian, Zaphod, and Zaphod's depressed robot Marvin have to confront Zaphod's political rival and rescue Trillian after she's kidnapped by Vogons. Ultimately, Arthur makes an important discovery that might not answer all of the universe's mysteries, but that makes him happy. So I really don't remember this movie coming out in 2005. I'm guessing that it wasn't a colossal hit because if it was then there would have been sequels i would think like there were five maybe six ish books and there was only the one movie uh, you're correct uh, the movie did have a pretty decent budget as you can imagine there's a lot of special effects in the film uh, it cost 50 million dollars and it came out on april 29 2005 it did open at number one so people were excited for this film and it opened with 21 million dollars but this was a very front-loaded film, and it only had a two-and-a-half multiplier, and it only wound up making uh, $53 million domestically and just over $100 million worldwide. So this was not really a financial success, in the theaters at least. Perhaps, perhaps later on streaming and DVD, etc., but not in the theaters. 
had this been a, a hit, I think it's not that hard. Just hire the same team and do it again and, you know, get these guys back, so the same actors. It's a very talented cast, but I would call it far from an A-list cast, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and like Sam Rockwell is first billed, and he's not the star of the movie. Martin Freeman is the main character, or the actor who plays the main character. I knew him from the original Office. Did you guys watch that? I mean, I know he was in that, but I hadn't seen it. This was the first thing I had seen him in. This was the first thing I had seen Zoe Deschanel in. So this was my introduction to a lot of different uh, people in this movie. Interesting. I really only knew Zoe Deschanel before this movie from Elf. Her career kind of took off maybe later in the 2000s with uh, 500 Days of Summer. And then she was on, what was that show? New New Girl. Girl? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But Sam Rockwell, even though he was first billed, he wasn't like a huge name in 2005. He wasn't like A-list actor. No, uh, I mean, he had done Galaxy Quest, which I love. But uh, right. you know, far from it. And uh, Moe's Def, he is uh, second build. The narrator is Stephen Fry. And you also have uh, Helen Mirren, uh, John Malkovich. I mean, these guys are awesome. It's a fantastic cast. Right, right. And Helen Mirren is a voice role. She is the voice of the computer that figures out that the answer is 42. Small role. I mean, she maybe had to go to a VO booth for a day, maybe two. (laughs) Alan Rickman, the late great Alan Rickman, is the voice of Marvin. And that character, I completely forgot about like his personality. Like I kind of remembered his look, but he's just depressed and everything he says is somber and morose and depressing or depressed and just delivered in Alan Rickman's voice. It just really works. It works so well. The part of Marvin is you get the greatness of Alan Rickman delivering those lines. And then the other half is the person inside the costume who's Warwick Davis. Right. Um, I think Warwick Davis, you know, did a fine job. And there's some physical comedy that uh, Marvin does. But he just kind of looks like a generic 1950s robot. But the voice acting is so good. It's such a shame he's gone because what a good voice actor. Right, right. Also, did you recognize the voice of the computer that's like on the spaceship? Yes. Yeah. uh, Thomas Lennon. Are you a big fan of the state? For me, I know him from Reno 911. Same with me, yeah. Yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I I heard that voice. I was like, that sounds a lot like Thomas Lennon. <laughs> and of course it is. And he's not really known as like a voiceover actor. Usually you see him on Reno 911 or The State. Uh, he's also a uh, very prolific writer. He wrote the Night at the Museum movies, among others. But yeah, hearing his voice, I mean, he was definitely having fun with that role and you kind of got the sense that like they all were i've seen some behind the scenes stuff on this movie and everybody was having fun like it was as goofy on set as as it was you know in the final product and i remember seeing something like the only person who didn't really seem to have fun was most deaf because he would just like fall asleep like if he wasn't filming he would just sleep on set Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I wonder why. (laughs) Maybe it was like a time zone jet lag kind of a thing? Not sure. Just the other (laughs) actors were like, we wanted to get to know him, but he slept all the time. Yeah, that's a shame. You would think he would be a cool guy. I mean, I'd want to talk to him about like his music background. You know, I have a million questions to ask him about that. Um, Because I'm 
me and I constantly complain about voiceover in movies, I should address the elephant in the room, which is that this movie does use voiceover prominently. And the voiceover is the narrator of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And even though I have an aversion to voiceover in general, I think the voiceover in this movie works really, really well. Because in part of like the construct of it's about this book and everything centered around the book. And so you kind of need a narrator to narrate what's happening. But also just the voice is funny and it's humorous and it provides exposition that you kind of need to be delivered in that kind of a way. You know, so I think this movie is sort of the exception to the Alan Noah rule of voiceovers are usually bad like this one just worked for me i mean i feel that stephen fry's casting as the guide is perfect yeah and that was one of the things douglas adams said was like a hardened rule he wanted stephen fry to be the guide like he didn't want to give in on that and there are times where the narration is just sort of voiceover narration and then there are times where he's the guide where Arthur needs to look something up to understand it better. And so that's when the voiceover kicks in. So sometimes he's just a narrator for the audience, and sometimes he's the guide in the movie talking about something Arthur is learning about. And so you kind of have to like figure out, like, all right, is this for us or is this for Arthur? But we're also Arthur in a way. So I feel that's why it works, is we're learning as he's learning. And sometimes we get information that maybe Arthur's getting or not getting, but it plays because we're along this journey too. I think the narrator works well because the way the movie works, it's kind of a family guy cutaway kind of movie where with a narrator, they can randomly say, oh, and let me tell you quickly about the Bababoopsians of the planet blah, 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 and just say a funny little quick anecdote about them and then move on with the story. I mean, there's so many in the book, and I happen to leave the movie on during the end credits, and yeah. there's another one during the uh, end credits that uh, just more stuff from the book. And I'm sure you could probably even tell without having read the book that these are just random little funny jokes from the from the novel that the screenwriters wanted to, oh, let's make sure to include that thing about this slug. And yeah. you could quickly just throw that in there. Yeah, that scene in the credits I thought was setting up a sequel because it's like that, like, you know, these aliens heard this thing that Arthur said and it enraged them because it was their ultimate insult and i was like oh so that's going to be like the alien invasion in the second movie but then it's just a joke that they came to earth and they were tiny and a dog ate them and that was the end of it so like no not sequel bait just a funny gag for the people who hung out in the theater or left it running on on streaming or whatever and i like that i like that a lot also the animation style i also thought worked really well it's very basic it's mostly just like stick figures kind of things yeah I read something today that said that they were trying to, like, push the limits of what they could get away with, they being the animators. And the movie is released by Buena Vista, which is under Disney. It's not, like, a Disney movie. And it's not on Disney+. Plus. But they kind of were, like, getting their hands slapped in terms of their risque jokes. But the one that made it into the final cut is that they imply that cows are aroused when they get milked. Uh, which is, you know, it's just like an on-screen joke for two seconds that 
probably most kids wouldn't necessarily catch, but it was pretty funny. That made me chuckle. Yeah, I feel that the animation in the guide enhances what you're hearing. And it's just yes. so it's it's two jokes at once and you can enjoy both individually or as they're as they're coming as a package. Right. And speaking of visuals that uh, enhance what you're hearing, the opening song with the dolphins, I got to say that's been stuck in my head all day. As it should. It's really, really catchy. And for me, as a fan of Weird Al and Spinal Tap and Lonely Island, I appreciate a good song that's also funny. And this definitely falls into that category where... The joke is the joke, and it's funny, but also just musically, it's interesting and well-produced and great. Yeah, the movie just opens immediately with with Stephen Fry narrating its lines straight from the book. It's Douglas Adams' sense of humor, and then, you know, it just ends on that, like, so long and thanks for all the fish, and bam, this big musical number with dolphins jumping around starts everywhere. Right away tells you exactly what kind of movie this is. You are either on board or you're walking out of the theater. <laughs> I think that's absolutely uh, fair of the movie producers to do that in the beginning because, you know, right after that scene, it is more or less for the next 10, 15 minutes, a, a kind of a straight up uh, sci-fi aliens uh, come destroy the earth. But you don't realize how wacky it is. I'm glad that that opening number, it's like, dude, this is a weird, weird story. And if you're not into this, that's cool. It's not for everyone. Right. And I mean, I could see that maybe that hurt it at the box office. You know, like people thought it was supposed to be like a quote unquote straight sci-fi movie. And it's not. It's also not Spaceballs. It's not like a specific spoof of any one thing, but it does kind of poke fun at the genre and sci-fi tropes in general. And it's also just kind of goofy because there's singing dolphins. So it's a lot of different things all at once. And it's easy to sort of see how that would kind of be more of a cult kind of a thing. Yeah. And the other thing I like about the opening number is Adams was an environmentalist among many other things. And so it's animals saying the earth is going to be destroyed, but none of you are listening to us and you're all doomed. So we're leaving. Very timely. Very timely. <laughs> right? As we're talking about climate change and, and things like that. Yeah. And like, it's done in a humorous way of like, we were trying to tell you that the world was going to end, but you thought we were just like doing tricks and like hitting footballs. But no, it is really true. The world is coming to an end. Why aren't you paying attention? And you think you're the most intelligent species on the planet, but- the voiceover says that humans are the third most and dolphins are the second. So I didn't remember what the first most intelligent species was, but I was kind of like keeping that in the back of my head of like, okay, we're going to find out that before the end of the movie. They do a couple other little gags along the way about like the Vogons have the third worst poetry in the universe. And then they'll tell you about like one of the other ones, but not the other. And who cares? It doesn't really matter. But the most intelligent species thing, you kind of figure that's going to come back around. And it does. Indeed. Okay, so I want to ask you guys about Galactic President Zaphod, played by Sam Rockwell. Who does he remind you of? Matt, you go first. It's been said that he is doing two different people as one, that he is doing Elvis Presley and George W. Bush. 
you can kind of see that in his performance. This movie came out in 2005. George W. Bush was president in that time. And that feels like a, a timely reference for for then james did he remind you of anyone else yeah you know i think it's because i'm getting mixed up a little bit with the name and the kind of the pompousness of him but i was getting hints of zap brannigan from futurama yes i was definitely getting zap brannigan vibes too i think i mentioned before but i'm re-watching futurama with my daughter and so that's kind of just top of mind. But yeah, also, and the name literally starts with Z-A-P. Also, though, he is the galactic president, and he steals the spaceship because he wants to go and find the question. And he's all about pomp and being very showy, and he stole things, and sorry to be that liberal who constantly says, oh, that's like Trump, that's like Trump, that's like Trump. But after the FBI raided Trump's house for stealing documents, I couldn't help but think that this guy's also kind of Trump-like. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought that if we'd recorded this episode, you know, a month or two ago. I, I think it was during Zaphod's, like, inauguration, right? When he steals the spaceship. Is, is that right? He steals the spaceship and he kidnaps himself. Right. That seems like the kind of thing that Trump would do. <laughs> I mean, also, I guess, George W. Bush. So that's fair. Uh, and obviously, they weren't making a Trump parody in 2005. But I couldn't help but think of that. It's fair. I did not think of Trump at all during this film. But it is interesting to think of uh, this compared to films that came out later. Recently, there have been a couple different multiverse kind of films and this film has this uh, improbability drive thing, and random things will happen. And at one point, the entire crew is turned into like a ragdoll version of themselves. Uh, and you saw this in uh, Doctor Strange and other multiverse films that have been popular lately. And I just like that this film from 2005 sort of did what all the other ones are doing now. Like, oh, look, there's an animated version of it. That scene where they're turned into the ragdolls, the yarn people, they go through the infinite improbability. You know, they slowly have to regain normality. And so, like, Arthur goes to throw up and then it, it's all yarn. There's like a blink and you miss it moment because you see his hand is still yarn. He's like wearing like a mitten. But then as he goes to pull the string out of his mouth it's a hand again oh i didn't see that like the camera sees his hand like on like the trash can he's throwing up in the yarn's coming out you see his hand is a mitten the camera swings up to his face and then he brings that same hand up to his mouth and it's a hand again so like somewhere in that camera swing he slid this mitten off his hand to make it a hand again there's so much like practical and just old camera trickery in this movie. I think that's one of the reasons I just love it so much. Yeah, and I mean, there are practical effects, like the Vogons, those are dudes in costumes, I assume, and then there are digital effects too. So the movie really does a good job of blending old school technology, new school technology, and making it all kind of work visually Except for President Zaphod's head. <laughs> like the the two heads thing where he's got his regular head and then he kind of jerks his head back and there's another head in his neck. That never looks right. I feel like that always looks bad. 
I agree. It was a it was a very poorly done special effect. Every time I'd be like, "Oh wait, he has a second head that doesn't look like it would come from anywhere." It just wasn't done right. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the technology wasn't there, or the budget wasn't there, or what. But I felt like every time he did that, it kind of took me out of it, which is a shame because it's kind of a funny gag that like the president can't have a whole brain, so then they had to split his personality, so he has two heads which I don't know that I fully understand all the way, but like there had to be a better way of visually showing that he had like a second hidden head somewhere. Well, in the the miniseries, the character always has like the second head pretty much just constantly on his shoulder. And even though it was the 70s, it didn't look good even for the 70s because it was essentially just like a paper mache head that when it needed to talk, its mouth kind of moved. (laughs) (laughs) so sometimes you just hear this other voice you'd be like what's talking oh i guess i saw a lip move okay that's pretty funny i mean this film was unfilmable really until the advent of cgi yeah because i mean it's one of those kind of films like lord of the rings you can't really do practical effects for everything you need here other than you know cheesy effects was that show good worth watching I only just watched it this past weekend, and I thought it was hilarious. There's a lot of extra stuff in there that's not in the movie. Like, the first, like, three, four episodes is this movie. It's very good. The actors are very good. It's almost identical dialogue because it was just Adams just rewriting his script but keeping in the things that he knew that he got right the first time. And there are people who swear by it, who absolutely swear by it. They, They like it more than the movie. There's a lot of people who don't like the movie who are kind of, like, purists, um, but Douglas Adams had a, a big hand in, in getting this movie made, and it's something that he always had wanted to have done. Right, and he passed away in 2001, yes. I believe. So he was aware of the movie. He was trying to get the movie made. And even before it was the TV show and before it was a novel, it was also like a radio show, I think, right? Yes, it originated as a radio drama that he wrote. And then, yeah, then he put it as a series of books. And the books are probably the most popular thing within this this whole franchise. Yeah, and so like he was okay with changing elements mm-hmm. for the different formats. So yes. it wasn't like he, – he wasn't overly precious with – the story has to be this. Like, I read that the um, the religious leader in the movie, uh, Homa Kavula, played by John Malkovich, that was an entirely new creation for the movie. Yes, and he, he created the character. A lot of these big changes were his. Um, a lot of the changes were things that he was like, oh, I'm okay with that change. Because he understood there's a difference between a radio drama. There's a difference between writing a book. There's a difference between a miniseries. You have to write things for that medium. And so if we have to make changes, if we have to cut things for time, if we have to add something in to make it a little bit more interesting to keep your audience there for an hour and 50 minutes, we'll make that change. Yeah, it's not a compatible shared universe, uh, right. the radio show to the movie to the 1970s. It's not like in Star Trek, they're kind of like, well, there was one episode in the 60s that said this. So now we got to say that, you know, every uh, six years, Vulcans go crazy and they have to have sex. You know, <laughs> like, I do like that, that he could make those changes and go, yeah, sure, fine. It's different here. You know, like it or not, he's the creator. So I guess he gets to make those changes. I think the other rule he had was he said, Arthur Dent has to remain a British man. And that's fine. There's plenty of Americans that they put in this movie, too. I did think it was a little bit weird how some aliens are also humans. Like, they don't really address that. And 
I don't know, maybe that's just a thing you're not supposed to think of. Like in Star Wars, there's aliens that look like Wookiees and Ewoks, but also lots and lots of planets that are just inhabited by people and don't think about it. Right. It's fine. Um, the Hama Kavula character, that whole scene is really just one joke centered around like this thing that the Hitchhiker's Guide says about the universe that people think it was created when some other creature sneezed. And so like this religious leader is worshiping the sneeze, basically, and they all have their handkerchiefs and they all sneeze in unison. And then he says, bless you, <laughs> but um bum get it? Because church worshiping sneezes. It's my kind of humor. I get it and I laugh at it. It's funny. I mean, it's kind of a dumb gag, but it kind of works. Also, it's John Malkovich, so he makes that scene work. Well, going back to, you know, this being turned into a movie, that's something that um, Adams had wanted pretty much like from the early days. So, you know, he wrote it in the 70s, becomes um, the miniseries in like the late 70s, early 80s. And then right away, he wanted it to be a movie. And so it's the early 80s. And he ends up getting um, linked up with Ivan Reitman to try to get it turned into a movie. Mm -hmm. And then Ivan Reitman was like, well, we should have one of the characters played by either Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd. And then Dan Aykroyd comes in and reads the script and starts getting all these ideas. And like there were too many changes. So Adam's backed out. But now Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd are talking. And that made Ghostbusters. Mm. Right. As somebody who loves Ghostbusters, I can kind of see how those two things are parallel and also would be extraordinarily frustrating for Douglas Adams where you have one idea and you want it to be this one thing and then a committee comes in and changes it a little and then changes it to something else and changes it to something else and then it's not your thing anymore. Yeah. And it took him from the 80s, you know, another 20 years before the movie was actually made. And he didn't live to see the movie completed, which is unfortunate. But I'm still glad that there's Ghostbusters. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just one of those, like, you know, happy little things. Like, okay, that he could make it work then, but we got Ghostbusters. <laughs> right, 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 right. So that kind of works. Um, Is there, like, a favorite joke that you have in the movie matt just one <laughs> you can pick a few that's okay that's allowed you know the first time i watched this movie the thing that made me laugh so hard that like i couldn't breathe that it hurt is when the vogon fleet shows up they make their announcement and everybody on earth is panicking and ford is grabbing arthur and they're trying to hitchhike and you see the the beam coming off of his ring the music is playing, you hear the orchestra, and it zooms out, zooms out, zooms out. Like 50 times it zooms out, and it's just getting more and more epic with the music. And it just keeps zooming, zooming, zooming until we're in space. It starts on ground in England, and it zooms all the way up to space until we see thousands of ships. And it's just like, dun, 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 dun. It just keeps going for like yeah. 30 solid seconds. It keeps going, and I was losing my mind. I was like, how many more zoom outs are we going to get? And then it finally just stops for a second. And the earth is destroyed. And there I am, like, red in the face, cannot breathe. That is probably the joke that just floored me more than anything. It is a good gag. And, you know, it almost sort of looks like, at a certain point, like, a stutter, like like a film editing mistake, right. kind of. It's funny, and then it keeps going, and it gets funnier, and then it actually gets less funny. But then they keep doing it, so it gets funny again. Yeah. 
You know, like that's a hard thing to balance. But yeah, that joke is solid. You made the reference to Spaceballs earlier. That's the opening gag of Spaceballs. It's funny. Right. Then it's not funny. And then it's exactly. I already knew the 42 joke watching the film. I was waiting for it and it was delivered very well. But I knew the punchline. I knew what was happening. So that one didn't make me like laugh out loud. But the one that definitely really made me laugh out loud was the Hitchhiker's Guide is telling you what to do in a dire emergency. Basically, when you're about to die, here's what you do. First, consider, wow, how lucky are you to have survived until this point? (laughs) That's pretty great. And then it's saying the bad news is that there's a lot of suffering that's going to happen to you real soon. But the good news is you're not going to be around that long to suffer too long. So that's good. That's the kind of humor that this film, that this book has. Another uh, line that uh, I did like was, we suddenly see a humpback whale that is floating through the air, but it suddenly has become conscious, and it's now aware, it realizes it's alive, doing everything that a baby would do, and who am I, what are these parts of my body, and, you know, it's starting to contemplate where they are in the world, and they splat on the ground, just as they're kind of getting into consciousness, and, and the reason even noticing, oh, the ground is coming closer. And it reminds me a little bit of um, Frozen. Olaf is a snowman and he's singing about, I wonder how great summer will be. And the gag is, you're never going to make it. And this whale is like, huh, this ground that keeps coming, I wonder how great it'll be and what kind of things that splat. And I, I just thought that was very funny. That was a good gag. And another gag that like, maybe goes on too long like you you could see how someone could make that claim because you're just hearing the whale's thoughts for i don't know two three minutes something like that the whale's not a character in the movie it's just introduced (laughs) right then and and you know like the movie takes its time with this whale just for that joke of splat you know it kind of made me think of uh the free Wilziax episode of South Park, which is basically just the whole episode leads up to the gag, spoiler alert for that episode, of a whale dead on the moon. Like, that, yeah. that's it. It's all just leading to that one joke. So this movie, as well as discovering the stand-up comedy of Eddie Izzard, was like my gateway into British humor, into British comedy. And the whale is voiced by one of my now favorite comedians and actors, Bill Bailey. I implore anyone listening to go look up this man's stand-up, to go look up uh, this show he was in called Black Books. He is an absolute riot. He is brilliant. The fact that they got him for that voiceover was great because he really does talk that fast. Like, that's just part of who he is and how he does things. Everything he's saying is, again, straight from the book. And they probably were like, you know who could breeze through this line real fast but still be somebody you could understand? Let's get Bill Bailey in here. And he's just, in Britain, he's just a, a comedic legend. And he still does comedy. And he's he's absolutely wonderful. Okay, that's good to know. I am not familiar, but uh, we'll we'll have to check him out. Um, I had a few down that were my favorite, but I really, really like when they finally get to Magarthia, the planet where they're going to find the question, and the planet has like a 
voicemail kind of thing that like the planet is closed they're like oh we'll just go anyway and then the message says as a token of our appreciation we will hope you will enjoy the two thermonuclear missiles we've just sent to converge with your craft to ensure ongoing quality of service your death may be monitored for training purposes (laughs) that's really funny (laughs) that is just funny and relatable and that made me laugh out loud i did also like the line when they're talking about the universe being created and they say like this was generally considered a bad move (laughs) like the creation of the universe generally people don't like it that just kind of makes me think of twitter where like doesn't matter how great something is people will say no didn't like it didn't care for it the universe being created nah mistake and just to be the trivia person that scene where they get to magrathea and they're greeted by that hologram voicemail The actor, that's, I believe, Simon Jones, who played Arthur Dent in the miniseries. Oh. The other scene I really like, one of my favorite jokes, is when they want to go rescue Trillian and they they have to get online. And Arthur's like, all right, everybody, stay out of the way. I can do this. I'm British. I know how to cue. And then he just gets at the back of the line and there's like 50 (laughs) people in front of him. But a robot is in the line. They copied the original look for Marvin from that miniseries too. They walk right by him. So the original Marvin is is on the line. That's pretty funny. Yeah. They found little ways to drop things in. They also found three ways to put Douglas Adams in the movie as well. Oh, I caught the very end, like when they're using the improbability device and then it like flashes into a million different things. And one of them was a face. And then it says for Douglas as the credits start. And I was like, I don't know what this guy looks like, but that had to be him. It was him. The other was um, when they go to Hamakavula's church, that big nose at the end of the stairs is Adams's nose. Oh, they got a mold of it and they were like, well, we're going to put that in the movie. That's awesome. There was another one, too. I believe it's when um, one of the best named characters in the movie is when Arthur meets Slarty Bartfost and he's, <laughs> he's getting taken through the, the factory of all the planets that they make. There's one that looks like a head and it's I think that's supposed to be Douglas Adams as well. Aha. Okay. I love that character. And I also just like Bill Nye, the actor. He and Martin Freeman were both in Love Actually, which is uh, another movie with a ton of British actors that we will do on the podcast at some point. Some Christmas will do that. And apparently a lot of the actors in this movie were also in uh, the Harry Potter movies, which makes sense because a lot of British actors in there too. Yeah. All right. Well, now I will ask you, Matt, the ultimate question of this podcast. Do you think The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stands the test of time? Overall, I think it does. Because, you know, there's really nothing in it that, like, has aged poorly. There's some CG that you're just sort of like, ah, that probably needed a few more years for it to look good. But overall, you've got the practical effects, which I think were done by the Jim Henson Creature Shop always looks good. The The stages look good. The Vogons look amazing. Um, yeah. When they're just sort of walking around different crowds of aliens, everything looks great. There's no humor that has aged poorly. For the most part, most of these jokes were written by Adams in the 70s, and a lot of it's just timeless humor. I think it's appropriate for all ages. I think you can enjoy this at different points of your life. So it's just a matter of Does this humor hold up for me? Does this make me laugh? And if you watch this movie and you were entertained and you laugh, 
that's all you need to know of if it stands up. And the other parts of it that stand up is, you know, pointing out that like, okay, it was written in the 70s, but now you can watch it in 2022 and look at Zephod and be like, he reminds me of Trump because it's very right. timeless. You can translate this to pretty much every few decades and be like, it reminds me of this because it's just a very common kind of commentary and satire. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of George W. Bush at all while watching this film. So if that was something they were hinting at, it completely went over my head. But then again, I didn't think of Trump or anything else. I was thinking of Zap Brannigan. <laughs> right, which, you know, it, it works on multiple levels. So that's a good thing. Okay, so so you think it stands the test of time. James, what do you think? You know, it's really interesting. This film was only in the theaters for four weeks or so. It seems to have been front-loaded with all of the fans that had been there in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but then puttered out. I'm not surprised it flopped because this is not a broad-appeal film. And I will tell you right now, this film does stand the test of time because it's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy film. But is this a good film? Are you going to like it? I don't know. I would say watch the opening scene. If you're rolling your eyes, you're not going to like this film. And if you can kind of see the humor in it, I think you will. So it's really a completely divisive film. But yes, it stands the test of time because just look at the name of it. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's not for everyone, but that's what this film is. And it does its job. This is a wacky sci-fi comedy, Futurama, before Futurama was around. That's what this is. I read a 70s novel in the 90s and then watched a 2005 film in 2022, and it still stood up to me. I guess it's all 70s humor. It's not dated. There's no Nixon references in there. So, <laughs> yep, stands up. What do you think, Al? We're two for two. Um, what do you think? I definitely think this movie stands the test of time. I really enjoyed watching it. I was laughing a lot throughout the movie. I think that it is well-written, it's well-acted, it's well-constructed with the practical effects, the special effects. It just works on every level. Like, Matt, you were saying the, the commentary about the climate and the earth and things like that. And whether you see Trump in Zaffod or not, there is still like this idea of the president of the galaxy who's kind of dumb and doesn't really have power. It's the bureaucrats that have the real power. When he's talking to Kavula, Kavula says, you won, you beat me because charm always wins over the ability to govern. I hear that and think of Trump. But yeah, you could make that argument about George W. Bush, and plenty of other people throughout history. It's a fairly universal idea, and these things do work. Like, there's really not anything in there that's dated. One thing that kind of stuck out at me is when Arthur is talking about when he first met Trillian, back when she was Trisha at this Earth party, he has a picture of her on his cell phone, but it's like an old 2005 cell phone, not a flip phone, but like one of those little guys. And I was like, did those phones have cameras in them? Because he only knew her that night, and then they went their separate ways. So I guess it must have had a camera, but like, did they? I really don't even remember if that was a thing on those old phones. Some did, yeah. 2005, there were camera phones. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. If I had to say something that 
doesn't stand the test of time. The only thing I could maybe think of, and I think maybe this is a stretch, but the character of Marvin, is he making fun of people who are clinically depressed or maybe only robots who are clinically depressed? I don't know that it's offensive. I could imagine somebody saying that it is. I did a quick Google search and didn't find any hits about people complaining about Marvin the depressed robot, so maybe that's enough to prove that it isn't. I did sort of think that at some point maybe his demeanor would pay off in a way of like he was going to say, well, no one ever listens to me. And then he was going to say something that was important and everyone was going to listen to him. And they really only do that at the very, very, very end of the movie about where the restaurant at the end of the universe is. And it's just a gag. I thought that thing was going to happen and be related to the plot. But his depression does save him in the end because he uses the point of view gun on on the Vorgons. And then suddenly they're all depressed because they see things from his point of view. And they'll go, I'm too depressed to attack you guys. And they all fall over. That's true. But then it's still sort of like the joke of being depressed is funny. Not like that it can be useful. I guess it's useful and funny. I don't know. I guess that's a fair point. I, I take the joke of Marvin is that, you know, he's incredibly intelligent. He's he's a supercomputer in a robot. And to me, what makes him depressed is he's surrounded by idiots. <laughs> if you're the smartest person in the room and you know it, you've got two ways to go. You can either manipulate everyone or you can feel really bad about your situation. And he takes the latter. And he's with Zaphod, who is literally an idiot with half a brain. Right. So that could be... Very, very depressing. Valid, valid point. Uh, but yeah, I think this movie definitely stands the test of time. Really enjoyable. Uh, it's a shame that I haven't seen it in 17 years or so, but um, I'm really glad that you suggested it, Matt, because honestly, I don't know that I would have put this on the list for the podcast if you hadn't, and I am grateful that you did because it was it was a fun rewatch for me. So thank you for that. Great. Glad you guys liked it. Definitely. And before we let you go, tell our listeners about your podcast. You mentioned it on our Iron Giant episode, but just give everyone a a reminder about season 14 time for a podcast. Yeah. So uh, season 14 time for a podcast is where an obsessive fan, a fan fiction author, and a first time viewer are going through every episode of the TV series Supernatural. I'm the obsessive fan. My friend PG is the fan fiction author, and her sister is the first time viewer going through one episode at a time. She is a serial binge watcher. At best, she's watching maybe one episode a week. She's going crazy because this episode is kind of like a sci-fi horror soap opera. So there's a lot of high highs, a lot of low lows. And when things happen that are emotional, they hit her really hard. She's very outward expressive. So it's just the two of us giggling as we're like, she has no idea who's about to die in five episodes and she's getting real attached. (laughs) So you get to ask her those kind of questions and totally hint her on like, so what do you think? think Doug's character is going to develop over the next eight seasons and you know he dies in the opening scene next episode yeah we'll always have a segment at the end for questions for Jess and then we'll ask sometimes it's leading stuff sometimes it's sort of like the episode set this question up and she'll be like I hate when you guys ask these questions because it makes me think I'm gonna get hurt (laughs) the other thing about the show is if there's a happy episode it's probably gonna have a sad episode next she's like this episode is weirdly wait what's coming so it's just a lot of that (laughs) 
Where can people find the podcast? You can find it wherever you can find your podcast. You know, Apple, Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, you can find them. You can find us at Season 14 Podcasts on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram. We've got a Patreon with bonus content and our own Discord. We invite anybody to to come join us. It's a, it's a pretty good time and it's a pretty chill community. So where are you with Supernatural, the show, with your podcast? We have just started season nine. We, in season eight, passed the halfway point of the series. Okay. So there's a lot that's behind us. There's more behind us than in front of us, but there's still a lot of show to go. And then the other thing is is they announced a prequel series to Supernatural. So we're looking at each other like, I guess we're going to keep going. Wow, that's great. More material. And where can people find you, Matt? You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Movies at the Mat, where I'm just on Instagram. I'm just posting any new movie I've seen, whether it's in the theaters or something on streaming. And then on Twitter, I'm just talking movies, TV shows, baseball, video games, whatever the topic may be. All of the important things in life. And Alan, people can find you on the dark web, I believe, correct? I told you not to mention that. Are there podcasts on the dark web? The dark web podcast will teach you how to make meth and steal nuclear plants. (laughs) But with like a catchy theme song, don't forget to like and subscribe. I mean, I've never been on the dark web, but I would imagine that would be a nice perk of the dark web is that you don't have people telling you to like and subscribe all the time. Their Patreons are, like, only paid in cryptocurrency. (laughs) (laughs) And political favors. (laughs) I think we're developing a business model here, boys. Maybe. We might be onto something. All right, we'll we'll, we'll take this offline. But, Matt, thank you so much for for joining us again, for talking about a a movie that was a real treat to to talk about and revisit. So thank you, and you're definitely welcome to to come back on again. If you got another movie you want to talk about, please let us know. I literally have a list of, of like, my dream episode of movies to talk about. Some you guys have already done. Some haven't met that 15-year requirement, but I can send it to you, and you can just... Pick whatever you want. Now that I've done two, got that five timers jacket, you know, on my wish list. I'm like, okay, if I do one more, I'm over halfway, you know. Okay, <laughs> there you go. I like that. I, I like the, the dedication. You've got a goal in mind. That is great. All right, well, thank you again. Thank you for joining us. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back next week when we will be talking about Pinocchio, the original Disney animated cartoon. There's going to be a new live-action CGI movie coming to Disney+. Plus, So we're going to revisit the original. Looking forward to that. I'm not looking forward to that. I had nightmares as a kid of Pinocchio when they go to Fantasy Island and all the boys turn into donkeys. I always ask my parents to fast forward that scene because I was terrified of it. If you had nightmares, if you feared it, that meant you were a bad kid. Only the bad kids went there. Absolutely. Yeah, terrifying. We're finding out about your childhood and we will explore your childhood traumas more next week when we talk about Pinocchio. Looking forward to that. Until then, of course, we want you to subscribe to us on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Make sure you also subscribe to Season 14 Time for a Podcast while you're there. And you can talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at Test of Time Pod. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Don't forget to bring cow.